ask that you would help us by your Holy Spirit, Father, to engage with your word in a way that is life-changing, and we pray that your gospel, which is powerful, powerful enough to set us at liberty, we pray that your gospel would have its work among us even this day. We pray in the name of Christ, amen. One of the themes that's woven through the entire Bible is a common theme, the theme of God's redemptive activity. Because one thing, it's very clear, if you read your Bible again and again, we read that God sets captives free. We all know the story, a true historical account of the children of Israel who have been in the in captivity in Egypt for over 400 years, and it is God through Moses that frees them from that enslavement in a wonderful and dramatic way. And then if you fast forward, you get Jesus Christ appearing on the scene, and in one of his first uh, statements in his public ministry, he stands up in the synagogue there in uh, Nazareth, his hometown. He opens the scroll for the scripture reading that day, and he reads from Isaiah 61 these words. Jesus read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. There's the theme. Release to the captives, and to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then if you continue to fast forward even further into the New Testament, we come to the writings of the Apostle Paul, and as one who was delivered from the bonds of legalism by Jesus Christ, here is the Apostle Paul insisting in his letter to the Galatians that believers in the gospel are liberated from the curse of the law. And that on the basis of grace alone, it's not religious rituals that somehow is going to ever make them acceptable before God. It's the grace that they find in Jesus Christ who has done everything for them. So we read in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Listen, Paul says, It was for freedom that Christ set you free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a liberating gospel. Wherever the gospel goes, people are liberated. Last week, we noticed in chapter 16 of Acts that the liberating gospel was on the move. We have a team of four people, and they're moving from an area in which the gospel had never gone before now. They've crossed over, and they've actually landed on what is now Europe, uh, the southeastern section of Greece. At the time, it was called Macedonia. And so Paul and these three other team members went to minister in this town of Philippi, the significant Roman city. And they met, in the first week they were there, a number of women who are gathered to pray beside a river there in Philippi. And these men clearly spoke clearly about the wonderful truths of Jesus Christ in the gospel. They began to minister to these women who were obviously religious but did not know Jesus. And God displayed the gospel power among them when he worked in the heart of one particular woman, opening her heart 
and she received Christ by faith. Her name was Lydia. She was a religious, well-to-do businesswoman. And the account described the fact that her heart was changed and transformed as a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ that was made known to her. And so now we're picking up that story of what has already begun to take place in this place beside the river where people are gathering there because there is no synagogue in that town. And I'd like to suggest that in Acts 16, the rest of the chapter, 16 and following, verse 16 and following, I believe we're going to find two compelling examples of gospel power that are going to set free people who up until that time have been enslaved. The first one is enslaved in sin. The other one is enslaved in fear. The first one that we see here, the gospel has power to set free those who are enslaved in sin. As I said, this gospel team comes to the place there beside the river. And as they minister to these people, here comes this woman who clearly has profound needs. This was not an average, ordinary encounter with just a person that's uh, fairly um, typical of someone you would meet. This was a slave girl, which meant that she was probably financially strapped. And she was a nameless young woman. It's interesting that there's never given a name for this woman. She was doubly bound. She was enslaved by an evil spirit, and she was enslaved by greedy, earthly oppressors. And like so many people today, she was being exploited. And from what we can tell, she was conscripted to do fortune-telling, which obviously must have generated a large sums of money for the people who were her masters. Verse 16. In a sense, you could say her job title was this. She was a demon-possessed medium. Verse 16 says she had a spirit of divination. She was involved in the occult. And while she was offering various predictions about the future, probably in some sort of frenzied state, she would probably rant and rave and shake around and make all kinds of very strange gestures, she actually was being served, she served as a mouthpiece for demons. Isn't it interesting that the people in first century Roman Empire, there in Philippi, in a sophisticated city, as well as people here in Long Island, a sophisticated part of the United States, are willing to pay sums of money to have somebody provide to them information regarding people who are dead or information regarding the future. Perhaps you're aware that there's a TLC show called Long Island Medium featuring Teresa Caputo, who uses, uh, clearly, I think she's a fraud. I think that she probably uses Facebook and obtains other information about people, and then she has an encounter with them, and then she tells them things that they are so intrigued and amazed that she would know about them. But I don't want to deny the fact that there are people who are involved in the occult who are seeking to provide information that only, that cannot be found, humanly speaking. And here in this text in Acts 16, you have a ministry team crossing paths with this nameless woman. 
a woman who is spiritually and economically enslaved. I found this one comment by one particular scholar. Listen to this statement. He summarizes her situation. She was a clairvoyant owned by spiritual pimps who sold her metaphysical powers. How sad. How tragic. And here she comes. She could not be ignored. (laughs) She continues to invade into their realm of what they're trying to do, and she's screaming and naming time after time that Paul and the members of this gospel team are what? They're servants of the Most High God, proclaiming to you a way of salvation. And this went on, not just once, not twice. I think it went on for quite a while. And finally, Paul reached the point where he said, okay, that's it, enough. I can't take this anymore. Interesting comment there. He becomes annoyed. And I believe that one of the reasons he shut it down is because it it dawned on him, as he thinks now from the point of view of the pagans around him, that when they hear the term Most High God, they are thinking that refers to Zeus. That refers to other gods, other deities in the Eastern cults. And so finally, out of exasperation, Paul takes the gesture, and in the name of Jesus, he expels this demon. I want to pause for a second. I want us to think about several principles that I think can be derived from this brief text. First of all, I would like to note that it was not by accident that this gospel team encountered this nameless woman. I believe that God wanted to use these men to liberate her from her spiritual and economic oppression. And I believe that this was a unique a unique, divinely appointed opportunity. Now hear me out here. I believe that Paul and the rest of the apostles were granted special authority as apostles, which means a first century apostle, someone who witnessed Jesus Christ as raised from the dead. They were given special authority and power to cast out demons that are found in unbelievers. And two texts of Scripture I would provide to you to to substantiate that or to to verify that is Mark chapter 3, verse 15, which Jesus says he appointed the twelve and that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. That is specifically given to the, the apostles, first century. Also, 2 Corinthians 12, 12 reminds us that the signs of a true apostle were performed among you by signs, wonders, and miracles. So please do not hear me implying in any way that this should be the experience that you and I would encounter and that we are to respond the way that Paul did. We do not have this kind of authority or power bestowed upon us. We're not to go around commanding demons out of people in the name of Jesus. That's not the point of the text here. But when we proclaim the gospel of who Jesus Christ is, and what he has accomplished in his crucifixion and in his resurrection from the dead. And when we call people to faith in him, in a sense, we are therefore bringing to them the truth of who God is in Christ, and we are waiting for God to do his work of regenerating the hearts of these people. And when they respond in faith as a result of God's regenerating work, 
you can be sure that God has set them free from Satan's tyranny. That is the power of the gospel. We must never forget Jesus' promise. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John chapter 8. He also went on to say that if therefore the Son makes you free, you shall be free. Indeed, you shall be truly free. And I would just say, in terms of the first principle there, Jesus loves to liberate the lost. That needs to be the one of the things that we draw from this text. This is a unique situation, but indeed Jesus is working through his people to liberate the lost. Secondly, I would like to draw from this text the observation and principle that Satan is a cruel master. Satan is a cruel master. He is a clever deceiver. The Bible describes Satan as an angel, an evil angel of light. Here is Satan. He so enjoys making promises to people. He promises them freedom. He promises them enjoyment. He promises them deliverance. Oh, it all sounds so wonderful, just like he did to Eve in the garden. Oh, you're not going to die. Oh, you're going to be like God. Wonderful promises. But in reality, his goal, the goal of Satan, is to do the opposite. He desires to bind, to imprison, and to enslave people into his lies and the misery of his fellowship. There are so many people in our world who are enslaved into various sin patterns. Because they have various addictions. Addictions to things like alcohol and drugs and pornography and gambling and sexual perversion and sin. Many of these behaviors become compulsive behaviors. Behaviors that people say, I don't know how to stop. I feel powerless to this particular struggle that I'm having. Now, I don't know all the ins and outs of that. I am not in any way an expert to untangle all that goes on in a person's life. So please do not hear me suggesting it's one, two, three simple little ideas. But I do believe there is a sad common denominator that I believe runs through all of these particular struggles. And it's found in Ephesians chapter 4. And if you look at that text, you're going to find that Paul warns against the danger of reacting out of anger. And many times people who have these kind of behaviors often have, have experienced some sort of traumatic situation in their life. It may have been a daily traumatic situation. It may be a one-time trauma that they have endured, a tremendously painful situation in life. And so deep down in their soul, oftentimes there is anger. There is a rage that sometimes has been contained in their heart and therefore, it's never been resolved. It's never been uh, dealt with. There's never been forgiveness extended or whatever needs to happen to address that. And therefore, it is unresolved resentment and bitterness that has just eaten away at their soul. And if you look at the warnings there, Ephesians 4, 28, 29, he says, avoid that kind of response 
ongoing, endless, continuing on, because this is one of the ways that the devil gets an opportunity into your inner soul and life. It is the way in which Satan gets a foothold into the walls of your inner self is when this issue of your heart has never been resolved. Now you can say you're crazy, but I think there's an element of truth in that. That's not everything that goes on in the hearts of people who are involved in various forms of addictive behavior, but I believe there's at least one element of it. There is a, a satanic element to it at some point, a vulnerability to Satan and his ways. And what happens? When these compulsive behaviors go on and on and on, what we're looking at is we're looking at the outward fruit, the outward manifestation of what goes on in the hearts of people whose hearts have been cut off from God. They have believed lies about God. They have, been, they have turned their back from God. They have given up on God. And oftentimes they leave a trail of destruction in their wake. Don't we see this and don't we grievously observe this every day people whose lives have broken relationships broken promises broken bodies and broken dreams my friend i say to you today the gospel has the power to break the bonds of compulsive addictive sin it is the only Truly powerful means of changing people from the inside outward. Let's never lose sight of that. Thirdly, I would just suggest to you that in this gospel ministry, we are called to compassionately present the gospel to those who are enslaved in sin. Compassionately. To those whose hearts are in bondage, bondage to the lies and the influence of Satan. I find it interesting here as I've read this text to think about, isn't it true that as, as you think about Paul's situation here, that the people who are most enslaved to sin around us, that those people tend to be the neediest among us, are the ones who oftentimes can and oftentimes are the most annoying the people who are out of control, the people who are saying and doing things or not doing the things that they say they're going to do, the people who are behaving in ways in which they are really uh, stepping over the boundaries of appropriateness and their addictive behavior indicates that they are out of control. And isn't it true that we oftentimes can give up on them? Now, I'm not saying to rescue them. Please don't hear me saying that. I'm not saying we enable them to continue in their sin. I am just saying we need to be compassionate toward them. We need to see beyond the outward chaos of the out going on the outside of their life and realize that there's heart issues going on in this person who desperately needs the gospel. Now I'd like you to turn in your Bible at this point to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, page 1415 in your Pew Bible. I believe this verse should be highlighted. This verse needs to be something that we hold on to. This verse needs to help us understand how we could ever have an, a, a compassionate view of people like this because we have to see them from a spiritual point of view. Interpret what's going on through the lens of spiritual truth. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, Paul's instruction to Timothy, he says, The Lord's bondservant, that is you, Timothy, somebody in ministry, somebody who's trying to seek to help people, 
with the gospel. You must be able to teach. You must be patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. My friends, we're in spiritual battle, are we not? Not against flesh and blood, but there are people who are opposed to the truth. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and, watch this, they may come to their senses and escape from the snare, from the trap of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. You see what Paul's saying? He's saying, listen, Timothy, don't lose sight on the fact that God, if you'll just be patient, keep ministering, realize that God can break through this spiritual stronghold in that person's life. Don't give up on that. Those who struggle with addictive behaviors oftentimes need some form of intervention. They need to be put into a place where they're safe, where there's a structured place that helps them to break uh, the bonds of this repetitive behavior, to stop doing that, to gain sobriety somehow, to make a clean break from this repeated sin pattern so that they can what? So they can finally begin to listen to what's going on in their hearts and to listen to more clearly to think about what God is trying to say to them to think more clearly about the truth of who Jesus Christ is to comprehend the wonders of the gospel that need to be applied to their hearts and I would just add parenthetically here as I've thought about this poor poor woman that sadly Many people will need protection. Many people will need safety to escape from their quote-unquote masters who use coercion, who use manipulation, and some form of abuse. And they have truly been enslaved. I remember when we were down in Ecuador with our daughter visiting Catherine when she was there working in an orphanage. Someone had started a ministry for girls. I mean teens and young 20s-year-old girls who had been involved in the sex trafficking industry. And they dropped me. I drove, we drove there, and we just stay, I stayed in the car. My wife and my daughter went in to just have an opportunity to meet these girls, to pray with them, and to have time with them. They wanted no man around those people at all, and I'm so glad. Those walls were there to give protection and safety to people who were in need of hearing the gospel, being told they're loved by God, and that they're safe. And sometimes the church has to do that for people. And praise God for every rescue mission, every opportunity of, of ministry that is being offered to people whose lives are out of control. They need the gospel. Now that brings me to my second point. I have to move through this in a fairly straightforward fashion because it's very well known to many of us, but it's a reminder that the gospel not only has power to set people free from uh, their own sin pattern, but also who are enslaved in fear. Fear, I'm suggesting to you, regarding dying. Fear about what happens in the life to come. Fear over facing the true and living God. That is a profound fear. And here, it's not surprising that if Satan has been defeated with the woman who now has this demon cast out of her, it's not surprising that Satan would resent that, this, that his subject would be liberated by the power of the gospel. So boy, oh boy, here comes opposition. Here comes all sorts of 
of people who are acting on behalf, I believe, of the evil one to bring further opposition to the gospel. So it's no surprise that the masters of this woman, realizing that now with all of her fortune telling is no longer, they cannot produce wealth, lots of wealth that was coming through this enterprise, it's now ruined. What do they do? They manhandle Paul and Silas, grabbing them, taking them down to the authorities, bringing all these false charges against them, and they make up and portray the situation in such a way in which they, they clearly are appealing to the racial animosities that are there. They are trying to politically char- uh, bring up politically charged accusations against them to try to rile up people against them. And so they get this crowd, this mob that's starting to rise. Next thing you know, the local town official says, I'm going to get control of the situation. I'm not going to have this get any worse. He says, all right, take these two men and just uh, give them the uh, treatment of the multiple rods, which is the a mechanism that was a, a handle that had numerous rods attached to it with straps. And so if you got hit with that one time, you got hit about ten times with many rods. And so they, they administered this illegal punishment. They were unauthorized to do that. There was multiple blows they received. And by the way, Paul lists this as part of his resume. He says, you want to know what my ministry is like? It's been beaten with rods a number of times. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Matter of fact, if you look at his writings in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul describes himself as being mistreated while in Philippi. He didn't forget it. And so what's the first point there, letter A? Strong response to that gospel power? They got a beating. That's the kind of response they got. They got beaten up, beaten with rods. Without a hearing, without investigation, without any kind of due process, here's Paul and Silas carted off to jail. They're held in top security, feet bound in stocks. They're held in inner jail. I am convinced at that moment, if you're reading this account, you see what cannot be seen in the physical eyes of those who were there. But I believe we see as we read this, the light of the gospel power, which is pushing back against the darkness of spiritual opposition that has been raised against them. Because at that moment, the Holy Spirit empowers Paul and Silas to do something, to react in a way that is totally radical. It makes no sense apart from the gospel and apart from God himself working in their hearts. They draw near to God at a moment when everything's going against them. They they rejoice in God when, when they're in pain. They're singing songs of praise to God. They are speaking words that are seasoned with grace instead of cursing God and cursing everybody around them, which is what many prisoners probably did. And those around them, let me tell you, they have, they're hearing what's going on in the middle of the night. They're listening to prayers. They're listening to praise and songs. These fellow prisoners... And this jailer, I believe at one point, he had been privileged, they all been privileged to hear and to see gospel godliness put on display right before them. And rather than demanding all their rights, rather than cursing the authorities, rather than cursing the unjust treatment 
or assuming that somehow God had forsaken them. The response of these two men is nothing short of showing forth the power of the gospel to overcome the most difficult circumstances. They are rejoicing in God. Joy in suffering. I believe that what you're seeing here in this text is that these men are sharing in the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. They have recognized that God providentially has placed them among these lost people who are in bondage in sin. And they are called by God to be there to sow the gospel seeds among these lost people who do not show any sign of being ready to die. But many of them could die at any moment. They are prisoners. They are facing horrible hygiene. They are facing who knows what all. Vermints, who knows what kind of things are going on in that place. Or some other out-of-control politician will decide to say, well, we're not going to follow the laws. We're just going to put this guy to death. We're sick of him. We need more space. Who knows? Letter C. God, at that moment, providentially provided a most remarkable open door of opportunity for gospel witness. I'm not suggesting to you that this is going to happen in your experience frequently, to have an earthquake in the middle of the night. But I don't know how many times you're in jail either for having preached the gospel and had beaten with rods. But the point here is that God intervenes here. This is God at work. The prison doors open up because of the walls crumbling, because of all the shaking of the ground, and the chains no longer are holding these prisoners that were attached to the wall of various places. And so God has dramatically provided a change, a dramatic change in the situation. <laughs> Completely reversed. And so this fortress-like prison is now like what? Get out of jail free card for everybody. And at that moment, here comes the jailer. He's obviously escaping his house that's falling down. He comes outside. He's putting things back on. He's got a little sword with him, I guess. And he is absolutely gripped with panic and terrifying fear that grips his heart. Because he knows that if any of these prisoners escape his charge, he knows what he's going to have to happen to him. His, his life is going to be terminated. They are going to put him to death for sure. His first reaction then is, verse 27, is to take his life right then, right there. And then what happens next, I believe, is another example of gospel power at the work in somebody's heart. Because notice what Paul and Silas say. They display amazingly compassionate love for a man who has just mistreated them, who is probably a hard-hearted, indifferent, gruff, you know, uh, rough-around-the-edges kind of person you could probably imagine. A person who's a jailer. Who wants to be a jailer? Probably likes, he's probably into power. He likes to have authority over people. Who knows? Anyway, here's this guy, and here is the response of Paul and Silas. They say to him, listen, 
Don't harm yourself. A person who's not expressing gospel power would have said what? Do nothing. Let him take his life. Who cares? Remarkable God-orchestrated encounter. The jailer, look at verse 30, trembling with fear. Have you ever seen a man, a grown man, tremble with fear? He fell down before Paul and Silas and asked, what must I do to be saved? Why is he asking them? My friend, you've got to know, understood it as we've tried to point out, there is gospel witness in the, in the lives of these men that's undeniable. Paul and Silas then, of course, didn't give him a long list of requirements. They didn't give him a long list of rituals. Well, you need to stop doing this, 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 this. You've got to start doing this, 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 this. None of that. Boil it all down. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And anyone else who's a part of your family or your larger people that you're tied to here. May I suggest to you, my friend, you ought to take that text, everyone here should take that text and say to yourself, have I done this? Can I put my name into that verse, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you, Mark Musser, shall be saved, or you, whatever your name is, shall be saved. Have you ever put your name in there? The promise is for you, my friend. You may be religious, like Lydia. You might be rich. You might be a person who may be abused and your background was extremely deprived and you had hardly anything growing up in life and you still don't have much today. You might be a person who was abused and used and you have yourself saying, God must think that I'm worth nothing. That is not the case, my friend. Your name can go in there. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Even if you're a person who has been hard-hearted, indifferent, even as someone who's depressed, you put someone who's despairing, you say, there's no hope for me, my friend, you can be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Several principles here. First of all, I want us to notice that the gospel is simple, the gospel is straightforward. We need to be prepared to simplify the gospel. Can you boil it down and can you communicate it clearly and succinctly. The story is told of John Smith. Back in World War I, he was the chaplain general or the leading chaplain of the British Army. World War I. And he would ask all the candidates of other gentlemen who have, who have come forward and want to be a chaplain, he would ask them one question. He said, now I want you to show me all you chaplains to be how you would deal with a man, we will suppose that I am a soldier who has been wounded on the field of battle, and I have three minutes to live, and I'm afraid to die because I do not know Christ. Tell me, how may I be saved? How may I die with assurance that all is well? If the applicant begins to beat around the bush, if the applicant begins to talk about, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to have, you know, this church is better than that church, or whatever. The bishop said, that will not do. I only have three minutes to live. Tell me what I must do. The story goes on to say, as long as that Mr. Smith was chaplain general, unless a candidate could answer that question, he could not become a chaplain in the army. And I would dare say that the gospel 
cannot save a dying man, a gospel that cannot save a dying man is no gospel. And a gospel that initially requires more than faith alone is no gospel at all either. As one helpful commentator pointed out, we need to be prepared, my friends. We need to know the truth. And that's a good verse to have memorized and have it up your sleeve because that is the truth. Point number two, under principles here, I would like to suggest that sometimes the most meaningful opportunities for gospel witness can appear and can increase in times of suffering. When we are in pain, when we are being treated unjustly, it is how we react to those situations that oftentimes provides a an opportunity for us to then speak of Christ in ways that have higher credibility, higher believability than any other time. Think about it. Joseph, his witness in that jail, in that prison, was profound because of his life and his reaction to all the injustice around him. It is Daniel who's in the lion's den who has opportunities to witness to those around him because of his reaction to those who have mistreated him. It is Jesus dying and suffering on the cross, who's witnessing to someone right on his side there on that other cross. Think about it. There have been many a person who has been impacted by the calm and steady believer who was in a waiting room of a hospital. Have you ever been in an ICU waiting room? Seeing people there dealing with heavy, heavy, heavy concerns about somebody whose life is hanging in the balance. And that person shows a peace, shows a calmness of heart. I'm not saying they don't grieve, and I'm not saying they don't get deal with stress, but I'm saying that it's amazing how the gospel changes how one reacts in those situations when you know you're safe in the arms of God. And so don't be surprised when you get into situations in life and your plans aren't working out too well, that might be the opportunity where God has given you an opportunity to shine for Him. Thirdly, the gospel sets at liberty every soul enslaved to fear of death. And that is my testimony, my friends. I don't know if you've heard my testimony. I trust many of you have, but I was saved at a young age in life in grade school as a person who was deathly afraid of dying because I did not want to face the true God who knew every single thing about me and still does. And the thought of appearing before God who knows all of my good things and all my bad things, including my thoughts, I didn't want to stand before him because I knew I was going to have to give account of myself. It is Jesus Christ who paid for that sin that now gives me peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't have to be afraid of God, and I'm not afraid of dying. And that's why it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, that the gospel delivers those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And there are people around us every day living with a dread of dying because of that fact. Only the gospel can overcome that. And point number four, the gospel powerfully brings transformation. Transformation. Changing people from the inside out. You see, this jailer, it's such a fascinating study in him. Here's this calloused guy whose heart is so hardened, he doesn't give a rip about all these prisoners probably. He could care less about them. He probably treats them like animals. And here he is so indifferent to the sufferings of those prisoners 
And what a radical change took place in him. When the gospel broke through, he humbles himself. He assumes the role of a servant. And here he is seeking to tend the wounds of the Apostle Paul and of Silas. He offers them hospitality. He's basically saying, what's mine is now yours. I'm convinced that inner gospel transformation is always evidenced by outward fruit, the fruit of obedience, and the fruit of expression of love to other people. How do you know if someone's saved? Look for the outer fruit of a true heart that's been transformed. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to be more confident in you and in the power of the gospel to work, to break the chains that bind so many people around us, bound in their sin, bound in their fears about dying, people who are very much in need of breaking free of those things. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning, we pray, who's struggling, perhaps in, in secrecy and without anyone else knowing about it, and they've been going through the motions, or they've been struggling and looking for some out, we pray, Lord, that you would give them a heart that responds in faith today, saying, Lord Jesus, save me, set me free, put my feet on a new solid ground, give me a new heart. I pray, Lord, that even today we would come to you, and I pray that you would use us to be effective in making gospel witness known to those around us, that they might know the joy of being set free in Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.